Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about housing, and more specifically, what City Council is doing to try and produce more of it, and more affordable housing at that. Now, if you live in Austin, I probably don't have to tell you that housing is a big issue in our community. And as housing has become increasingly unaffordable, there's been greater and greater discussion around our land development code, which is a set of rules that determines what can be built where in the city. And even though on its face, a land development code sounds pretty boring, (laughs) uh, this set of city rules has been the topic of hot debate in Austin for years. And that's because these rules can have a big influence over how affordable Austin's housing market is, where housing can and can't be built, and how quickly new housing can be built. It also can impact things like gentrification and even flooding. The other key thing to note is that Austin's Land Development Code is pretty old. It was created back in 1984, and recent efforts to completely overhaul it in a process known as Code Next pretty much failed. (laughs) So what's going on now? Well, back in November and December, several new council members were elected, many of whom ran on a platform of improving our land development code and our permitting processes. And over the past several months, council has passed lots of new ordinances aimed at doing just that. So to fill us in on exactly what those new ordinances are and what they do, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with council member Ryan Alter. Council member Ryan Alter represents District 5 in South Austin and is one of those new council members elected at the end of last year. Okay, let's go ahead and give that interview a listen. You gotta leave it to the people to I'm here with council member Ryan Alter and we're talking about housing. So um, let's just start at the very beginning first. So um, council has been doing a whole bunch of housing related stuff recently, passing a whole bunch of housing related things at council meetings. And a lot of it ties back to our land development code. Can you just explain in simplest terms, what's a land development code? I think some people might not know we even have one of these. Sure. So the land development code is our set of rules that govern what anyone can or can't do with a piece of land. So the term people are most familiar with is zoning. So every piece of land has a particular zoning uh, designation, some of that single family, uh, some of that's multifamily, some of that's commercial, but then within each of those categories, there are different restrictions. So for instance, sometimes you'll hear people say SF3 or SF4, that's single family three or single family four. And, And the difference there is just usually how big the lot is, how many units you can put, Um, And so as you progress up, like from SF1 to SF6, SF6 gives you more more units like townhomes, whereas SF1 would be just a single unit on a a smaller lot. So that is kind of the, the core of the code. But then the code has a lot of other elements to it. Uh, things that are uses. So saying you can put a car lot on a piece of land, but not a convenience store, or uh, you can have a daycare, but not a hotel. So that's an element of the code. And then the last piece of it uh, at a, a broad level is really the how we do things. So the rules governing 
what requirements need to be done in order to build something on a, a piece of land. So if I can build a house, what rules do I need to follow to do that? Uh, you know, what, what permits do I need to get? How much uh, impervious cover am I allowed? Things like that. So, so it's a very complex set of rules that dates back to our current code. Uh, the, the foundation of it was adopted in 1984. And we have over time layered piece by piece, band-aid by band-aid on this code as we've evolved as a city. And that has created some real challenges to development. We're just, we're a very different city than we were in 1984. And so there are elements to the code that uh, we are trying to update and get right for our, our current needs as a city. Right. And some of this, you know, because it's so old and so many band-aids have been put on top of it, it's really complicated too, right? You know, I've been watching some recent council meetings and work sessions and city staff that's trying to implement some of these changes. It seems like a lot of work, the code has gotten so big that it takes them a lot of time to even be able to edit it because there's like pieces all over. Um, It seems like it's kind of become a little bit of a beast to that, (laughs) to change. That's right. I mean, you could read one section of the code that says you're allowed to do X, but then not realize in a whole nother section of the code, it says, actually, no, you can't do X. You have to do Y. Or if you want to do X, you have to do this other thing or check over here because actually you have to make sure that condition Z, you know, it's, it is, that's the layered element to it. We have not done a comprehensive look at, um, at the regulations. It's been kind of these one-off, you know, there's a problem and we try to fix it, but not necessarily address the, the broader issue. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do right now is, is take a, an issue, give staff direction, but also give them uh, the authority to look holistically at a specific topic and and resolve any conflicts or any uh, just kind of cleanup of the code that is necessary. That was an item that I recently moved through the Housing and Planning Committee to give them that uh, authority so that we don't just take these one-off approaches. We actually address the holistic nature of the code. Right. And so one more, one last question on the approach, and then we'll, we'll go into the individual things you all have been working on, but like catch us up as to what the, the approach is right now, because, you know, I think a lot of people in Austin will remember we're working on this thing called Codenex that was meant to be the comprehensive rewrite for a decade almost. And that effort kind of failed. There was some legal challenges, you know, there was some fighting about it and then also legal challenges. And my understanding is that I kind of stopped code next and and so the I so now we can't pass a comprehensive rewrite or we can only pass big changes of a certain percentage of city council agrees. Like where are we at with what we can do? And kind of how have you all settled on this approach that you're taking? Like what is this approach? So when when we pass a zoning change, we have it has to get approval of the council. If a certain number of people object in what's called a valid petition. And that's like the public, members of the public. That's members of the public. In in its typical setting, what you have is a, let's say you're changing the zoning on a single piece of land and the neighbors, you get 200 feet if you draw a circle around that piece of land. And if 20% of the land area 
around that lot object to the zoning change, then it requires a supermajority, nine votes instead of six. Okay. When we got to code next, what happened was there were questions about the notification to everybody. So when you do a zoning change, you notify people around the individual parcel of the zoning change. Right. People might be familiar with this. Like I've gotten letters in my mailbox before and it'll tell me, you know, your neighbor a block away or that a bar might be opening or something like that. That's exactly right. When they were doing code next, there was um, the city argued that this was different because it wasn't an individual parcel that was being rezoned. It was the entire city. And so the notification rule didn't apply. That ended up going to court. Long story short, um, that the court said our notification was improper. And um, so then the council ultimately changed their approach to how they were going to address code amendments, and they were going to only try to pass amendments that could gain at least nine votes. And so at the time, Code Next did not have nine votes. Um, and so they, they took a different approach. So today, we, we certainly could do a uh, full rewrite of the code. We still haven't, the courts have not addressed the question for us of we know we need to notify everybody, but we don't know the valid petition question. Is it 20% of an individual landowner or is it 20% of the entire city? Um, that is a still a question that I believe that the courts haven't answered. We as a city have an, a, an opinion and I have an opinion, um, but that's where things stand today. So we are, we're instead of kind of taking this top down approach, we're kind of trying to go bottom up and look at piece by piece and and figure out each each piece of the puzzle so that when we 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 fix that piece start putting them together it ends up uh, having a code that works for the city okay gotcha so so what kind of that's boiling down to is uh, and it does seem like council is really trying to make an intentional effort to pass things that nine or more council members will agree on. Um, Codenex was more divided than that. That's um, right. And in theory, like if this, if council wanted to go back and do a whole new rewrite land development code, they could, even if people objected, if enough people, if enough council members said yes, but that's a whole bear in and of itself, I suppose. So, that is. <laughs> okay. So right now taking this approach, but you have been, I think, tackling bigger chunks of, of the code, you know, than, what was done even a year or two ago when we had already been told Conex wouldn't work. There were some things on the edges, but it seems like council in the past few months has been trying to really take big bites. <laughs> and maybe the appetite of council has changed. It's the conversation I've been hearing on the dais is different too. It seems like more council members are willing to take votes to change pretty substantial pieces of our code. Maybe not an entire rewrite, but big chunks of it. Yep. I think um, that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some of them. So just recently, one of the um, ones that I know you kind of led the effort on um, calling it opportunity unlocked. That's so right. why don't you explain a little bit about what, what that program would do? So we have a host of what are called density bonus programs. And what a density bonus program is, is that you take your base zoning. So let's say you're allowed two units on a lot. And we say, 
we are going to allow you to have either more units or more height or just more something than your base entitlement. In exchange, you have to give us uh, affordability typically is, is the exchange. So what uh, there was last year a discussion, what was known as the VMU program. It's essentially mixed use on our uh, large corridors like Lamar or Burnett. And if you know your base zoning gives you 60 feet, but we'll give you an extra 30 feet if some of those additional homes are affordable. That's okay, and that's of, height of the building, for example. So that's what you're that's height of the building, exactly. So that's how some of our density bonus programs work. What typically happens in a density bonus program is um, it requires some form of subsidy. So you, it's accompanied by either city bond dollars or something in order to get the, the affordability level required under the program. Okay. Well, so, so let me clarify that real quick. So, yeah, yeah. so say a developer comes to you or whatever, and it's like, okay, I'm interested in taking advantage of this density bonus. I would like my building to go 30 feet higher. Um, it's not just the 30 feet um, and, you know, and, and they'd have to build X percentage, you know, of affordable units in there. So building 30% higher doesn't give them enough money yet still to build those affordable units. They might need a little help from the city still with some kind of affordable housing fund to make that work. Depends. Sometimes okay. it is enough and sometimes it's not. And so, for instance, the program uh, Affordability Unlocked that we have, that program was designed to uh, essentially require some form of subsidy, whether that's state tax credits or what are known as what we call Rota rental housing demonstration assistance, uh, but some some additional subsidy because our affordability level is at such a, a steep requirement that in order to make it financially feasible, some addition some public dollars are required. Gotcha. Because and when you talk about levels there, just so people are clear, when council talks about affordability, there are all these different levels. It can be people who are making 50 percent of the, you know, MFI, the median family income or less. So you it can be the range. Right. A lot of times it's like maybe 80 percent is like a teacher or maybe 20, you know, like that way you're providing all kinds of affordability. So what you're talking about with that one program is you might need more subsidy because you might be trying to target the low, the people who need the most amount of support or, you know, that's right. That's right. Owners. And so what we're trying to do with opportunity unlocked is to have a program. This, this particular program is geared at home ownership, which a lot of our programs are not, they're geared towards rentals. Uh -huh. So this is a program specifically designed for home ownership. And what it does is allows for additional, um, additional building on a lot, so additional units in exchange for some of those units being affordable. And so um, what, we're, what we're doing is essentially having the developer subsidize the affordable units by having um, that additional density. And so what this program has a couple special features, one being that it is uh, targeted towards ownership, but we really want it to be, uh, we want to incentivize family-friendly affordable housing, which is typically not what you see. Oftentimes when you have an affordable unit, it's a studio or a one bedroom. And instead what we're doing is we have um, geared this program towards bedroom count. And so what we're saying is let's take a whatever lot size, divide it by a certain number, and that tells you how many bedrooms you're allowed on that lot. 
And then you can split up those bedrooms into, let's say it's a, you're allowed 10 bedrooms. You could do five, two bedroom units. You could do a three bedroom, a three bedroom, a four bedroom, you know, however you so choose. But we say that a certain number of those need to be affordable. And by doing that, you're incentivizing the developer to create two bedroom, three bedroom, maybe even four bedroom units so that they can uh, essentially uh, take, take whatever their requirement is and coalesce them into one or two units, which allows for a product that just simply doesn't exist in the marketplace and does it at an affordable level without any public subsidy. So we, we can't buy our way out of our affordability crisis. We don't have enough bond dollars. Uh, we don't have enough state tax credits there. We need to, to have the market drive what will, will be the solution. And so by doing this, essentially what we're, what I'm hoping to create is a developer to look at a piece of land and instead of saying, I'm going to build a $2 million mansion on this piece of land, because that's the easiest thing to do. And that's how I'm going to make the biggest buck. Instead say, you know what, I could build uh, a triplex here or maybe a fourplex and make some of those units affordable for families to live in this neighborhood and fit within the neighborhood. We're not um, wanting something really, we're not granting, you know, a bunch of extra height. We're not saying take over the lot. Uh, you know, there might be uh, potential additional impervious cover, but not, um, you know, commercial, for instance, allows like up to 95% impervious cover, whereas residential is usually in the 45% realm. So we're going to keep it around what a residential um, characteristic would be, but it's important to, to incentivize someone to go towards the affordable uh, path instead of that unaffordable one. And so that's what we have tasked staff to um, come back to us with. We gave them some criteria and we're working with them. We've been working also with some stakeholders who are in this space to make sure that it actually works because it would, it, it's not enough to just create a program that sounds good on paper. It actually has to work. Right. And you have to talk to these developers and, and make sure that this, because the idea here would be right, that a developer would say, okay, I could build this one, you know, like you said, very expensive house on this lot. But the idea would be that you're designing a program that would make a developer be like, I could make more money or the same amount of money if I built four units. That's right. And one of them's affordable. So that you so the the mechanics or the economics there have to work, I guess, in order to actually make them be like, oh, I actually could make more money if I built one affordable unit and three non. That's right. And and it will be, you know, the idea is for this to be accessible throughout the city, not just, you know, on the edges. Um, but by, by target or by having it be a, you know, taking the lot size and dividing it by a certain number to tell you what you're allowed to do. It helps though, you know, if there are neighborhoods with very small lots, you're not going to be able to achieve a lot of density on a very small lot. Right. So that right. probably, um, you won't see it in that particular spot, but there are a lot of neighborhoods throughout the city that have uh, slightly larger lots that could sustain, you know, more than just the one really big home. And so we want something that allows people to be able to have the opportunity to live in all our great neighborhoods. And right now that's just not the case. Right. Um, I don't know if you know the answer to this one or not, but 
I've been seeing, I live in East Austin and I've been seeing more and more people doing this thing where they're building like one house in front on the lot and one house in the back of the lot. Like, is that a change to city code? Is that just something that's developers are realizing they can do? Um, a lot of times there still seem like a pretty large house, but at least two houses are fitting on what used to be one lot. That's right. So most of most lots in Austin are zoned SF3, which it allows for two units on the lot. Okay. And, and what um, developers will do is either build a duplex so where they're attached or build what's called two family, which is what you described, a house in the front, house in the back. Um, but there's limitations. That house in the back is, is technically an ADU, an alternative dwelling unit. And there are limitations on how big that rear house can be. And so um, what you will almost always see is a much larger house in the front and like a two bedroom house in the back. Uh-huh. And that is uh, just kind of a, a model that has shown itself to be financially attractive. And so that's why it's proliferated. Right. I guess just as housing, the cost of land has increased, naturally developers are inclined to to do that more. Whereas before it would have been a yard, I guess. That's um, right. Okay. So I, we talked a little bit about Opportunity Unlocked. I want to talk about um, some other things City Council has been working on. I know there was some effort around reducing fees and kind of streamlining the review process for subdividing properties. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about this? People probably don't even really understand that there are fees or a review <laughs> process. Like if you're not a developer, if you're not somebody who's ever done this before, but talk about the motivation behind this change. Absolutely. So uh, kind of taking a step back for a minute, it, there's the the code side of things that we've been talking about. So those are you know, the, the rules you have to follow, but then there's also the administrative side and that's the actual process you have to follow. And our process can often be the part that is the most difficult, not necessarily the, the rules, but, but how we implement them. And so when it comes to subdividing a lot, we make it incredibly expensive and difficult to, let's say, even just take one lot and divide it into two. Um, and yet it's incredibly easy and cheap to take two lots and combine them into one and build, you know, a really big home on them. So I, I saw that and, and thought that was just completely backwards and not serving uh, what our goals are. And so what, what we did in this item that um, I authored is allows for subdivision up to six lots at a much faster and through a much faster and simpler process. So what the staff is going to do, it's going to be pretty much in all areas of the city where there already is uh, utility infrastructure. So we right now, when you apply to have a subdivision, it goes through this very lengthy review. They check to make sure utilities are present. They check the environmental issues. They check uh, fire issue. They check it all. And that's really important. And I don't think um, we should just completely abandon that. What uh, we are, what I've proposed is take those lots that have already undergone this level of scrutiny when they were created and that we know have the the water, wastewater, electric infrastructure already in place and create a much more streamlined process for them to 
get in the door and be able to subdivide either one or you know one two three up to six so we're not talking these large master subdivisions that really do need a lot of review you know if you have someone who has a lot that they want to either um, divide and sell a piece so that they can still afford to stay in their home or so that um, you know it can turn in they can build on it and rent it maybe and, and be able to afford to stay in their neighborhood i think they should be able to do that and then it shouldn't take a year and you know it can cost 20 30 50 000 easily just in the this. fee right just, just the in, fee that goes to the city yeah exactly the fee and, and you have to hire an engineer like it's mm. it's a it's a very arduous process and so i want to see us make that easier because a lot of people what you know, the, what you described where you have the two units on the lot, or if we have a duplex, for instance, you have to have a condo regime and that has condo fees attached to it. And there's, mm-hmm. um, you have to hire a lawyer to set up the condo regime. There are all these additional expenses that if we just drew a line in that lot and let you have two individual lots, you wouldn't have to have that condo regime. You wouldn't have to have that additional expense and headache. And so, we we need to re- reduce barriers to a nat- a more naturally affordable product and that's what allowing for a simpler subdivision will do okay so we talked about um some uh, on this permitting side and opportunity unlocked you mentioned affordability unlocked and i know council just talked about making a few changes or tweaks to that program as well let's just quickly summarize that again so that's another density bonus program but my understanding behind affordability unlocked Um, is that it's really targeted towards building like deeply affordable um, complexes and is geared more towards like affordable housing developers. That's correct. That's not a for, not really like your general for-profit developer, right? That's right. So you're talking now at a very deep level of affordability, the 50% MFI or 30% MFI, that the only way you can afford to build something like that is using some form of subsidy, whether that's state tax credits or bond dollars or something like that. What Councilmember Fuentes passed and I co-sponsored was a pro a, a building on that to see can we figure out a version of that program that also can, like Opportunity Unlocked, can operate without a subsidy. Mm -hmm. So we would have to most likely reduce the, not make it so that it's not so deeply affordable. Um, But if we can do that and not require subsidy, then in in theory, we can get more. And so hers is certainly going to be um, it's going to hit fit hand in glove with mine. I think it's going to be more geared towards rental, though there is a, certainly an ownership aspect that is possible. That one is programmed towards unit count. So whereas Opportunity Unlocked was really focused on the bedroom and creating the you know family-friendly, affordable ownership housing, uh, that will be a, a unit-based product. And we're going to be able to see kind of how how, what different product those deliver to the market. And that will help inform future decisions of council of how we calibrate our programs to achieve the results we want. So affordability unlocked has almost exclusively been used in the rental space. If you look, it's like 4% ownership and 96% rental. So that, that is how that program has been used. So if you kind of take the new affordability unlocked tier and opportunity unlocked, we're 
creating both home ownership and rental at an affordable level without subsidy, which is critical. Gotcha. So um, assuming, you know, council member Fuentes' proposal goes forward, it would just add another option of affordability unlocked. So it still would have that deeply affordable side, but then there could be another level of the program if someone was interested in taking up the unsubsidized um, version, perhaps. And I guess are those ones more geared towards like larger complexes? Yeah, typically you see, um, you know, 12, 18, I mean, shoot, the new uh, one of the new, I think, foundation community product projects, which is like 100 units utilized affordably in lock. So they're, right. you know, it can, it can run the gamut. Right. And that's who it's really geared toward is, as it is right now, is to organizations like foundation communities, nonprofit, affordable housing developer. Um, right. And and council has been, my understanding, pretty happy with the way affordability unlocked has worked so far. And this, I guess, is just trying to figure out more ways to to grow the program. That's exactly right. Okay, cool. Um, so then, you know, taking it back, like big picture, again, when you're looking at all of these things and and picking away at it, like, let's talk about the why, I guess, you know, we talked about some of these specifics, but what do you hope we're really achieving here? I, you know, it seems a little obvious, but but really, like, why why are we doing this? What do we think the result can can be? And and what are you looking to do, you know, next? Or do you still have your eyes on like, ooh, if we could tackle that, that would be significant. So uh, the why is, um, you know, as people would expect, but, you know, I look around my neighborhood, other neighborhoods, and what too often I felt like I was seeing is, you know, scraping a lot and building a one or two very expensive homes that were out of reach for most Austinites. Um, You know, I grew up here, we're raising our kids here, and if they're going to ever be able to dream to live here and and raise their children here, then, you know, we all need to be able to afford to live here. And so I just, I felt like we need to change the dynamic of how we're driving development in order to allow all our families to continue to, to live here and, and prosper. So that was that was why I ran for office, and that's kind of the the, the driving factor behind all these um, various housing items. And looking forward, I think I think the only way we get we solve our housing crisis is to have for us to be able to design our code and our rules. In a, in a way that naturally steers affordable development. You know, I, I said it a few times here and I'll say it again. We, we just cannot buy our way out of our affordability crisis. And so we need to point the market forces toward developing affordable housing. And I believe the way you do that is by changing the incentive structure uh, that it currently exists so that we incentivize building the affordable product and we disincentivize building the really expensive product. We don't make it impossible, right? If, if you can afford it and that's what you want to do, more power to you. Mm-hmm. But we should have uh, homes that are within reach of Austinites throughout the city, not just at the edges or what is you know becoming more and more common in Kyle and Buda and Round Rock and Bastrop. And, and that's just not sustainable for us as a city. So, so that is, that's the panacea, right? How can we create a set of rules 
that naturally creates a more affordable product throughout the city um, that doesn't always require us to step in and, and, you know, spend bond dollars or other dollars that just are too limited. We, we don't have enough to solve our, our challenges. And that was Austin City Council member Ryan Alter. And just as a little procedural update for you, uh, most of the programs and land development code changes that I talked about with Council member Ryan Alter, they're not yet the law of the land here in Austin. The way that it works is that City Council passes a resolution, which usually directs city staff to make changes or to create a new program that achieves, you know, XYZ. Then city staff goes through all of the work of actually making that thing happen. And that often includes some degree of public engagement, uh, greater research and studies to ensure that the changes will have the desired impact, the actual legal work of writing in the code changes in a way that's clear and doesn't contradict with other parts of the code. And so basically all of that is a lot of work. And our city's planning department, which does a lot of this work, has about a 30% vacancy rate. So the changes aren't happening super quickly at the moment. Um, Staff has said that it could be several months to more than a year before co-changes are brought back to council for final approval and a final vote. But a prioritization process has been developed to focus on co-changes that could have the biggest impact and are the easiest to implement first. And speaking of these code changes, um, the ones that we discussed with Councilmember Ryan Alter, they aren't the only things on the agenda. They aren't the only things Council's been working on lately. Uh, Councilmember Cheeto Vela, who represents District 4 in North slash East Austin, has also been pushing for some big changes um, around something called compatibility. So to hear more about that, let's listen in on a recent interview I recorded with him. Okay, so here is Councilmember Vela talking about compatibility. Okay, I am here with Councilmember Vela. We're talking about land use, affordable housing. Everyone's favorite topic, right, is, is, is housing. That's all we can talk about these days because it's a big issue in our city. But there's a whole bunch of like behind the scene things in the works that are trying to deal with this. So I want to talk today um, you know, land development code and specifically compatibility. So this is an issue that um, you've been focusing on. Let's just start highest level. What is compatibility? What are we talking about here? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> compatibility is always uh, really one of the trickiest uh, parts of Austin's housing code to explain. Uh, but my favorite way of explaining it is that it's kind of like a, a magic force field that emanates from single family homes, creating kind of a barrier uh, around the home where nothing tall can be built. Uh, you can keep only like 30 feet for a certain amount and then go up to 40 feet after another amount. Uh, so that's basically what it does. It's, you know, compatibility is like a, a range around a single family home uh, where nothing tall can be built. Right. And so this is like when we talk about zoning and our land development code, you know, we have a few different elements, right? Like one is your like traditional zoning, which is like you cannot can't have a laundry, you know, you can have a laundromat here, you can have a bar here. It's like the use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, compatibility is not really about the use of the building, right? It's about what it literally looks like. 
Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it's, it's a really strange concept. It's not unique to Austin, but it's taken to a level in Austin that we don't see in any other cities, uh, particularly in major urban cities. You know, uh, strict compatibility limits like we have in Austin are really more of a suburban characteristic, you know, kind of your, your West Lakes, you know, your, those kinds of uh, cities, uh, suburban areas outside of the urban cores will adopt those rules to kind of keep their cities very small scale and, and, and uh, with suburban style developments. Uh, but rare is it that we have a major urban center with, uh, with, limits as uh, strong as uh, Austin's. Uh, and the the problem also with that zone of protection around the single family homes is that 90% of our city is zoned single family for single family homes. And so when you then factor in those radiuses, those force fields around all of the single family homes, the areas where you can actually build tall buildings in Austin, there's just tiny little edge here and a tiny little edge here. And so we really don't have a lot of places to build the large residential structures, you know, big tall apartment buildings that we need to add enough housing so that all the people moving here have a place to live. And so prices don't skyrocket because everybody is competing so much for that, you know, one, two bedroom, one bath available in in you know in this neighborhood right and you know when we're talking about this like in a real sense i think our current compatibility is what like 540 feet or something like that from a single family house Mm -hmm. um is kind of like that radius we're talking about where there's some of these restrictions on on height and i think i was reading in a city document that's like two blocks pretty much Yeah. yeah um it's a huge length. Uh, it's, it's there is no parallel among other cities. No one goes to 540 feet uh, like Austin does. And again, if you think about you know your neighborhoods and you think about you know 540 feet around the house on the farthest edge of the neighborhood, you know major urban corridors, Lamar Boulevard, you know Burnett, uh, are you can't build apartments to the height that you're zoned to because of the compatibility rules. Uh, so it, it is the number one uh, feature of our zoning code that cuts the amount of housing that we're able to build. Uh, I was talking to a, a builder the other day, uh, and he was saying that he believes that the compatibility rules in Austin probably cut about 20% of the units off of the buildings that have gone up in Austin, let's say over the last you know 10 years or so. So in other words, we're losing about 20% of our housing capacity to this very strange and unique rule. Right. So what, so what you're talking about here, you know, is interesting to think about. So you're talking about some of these quarters like Lamar, like Burnett, you do have neighborhoods that run pretty close to them. And so what you're saying is, um, you know, some single family home is casting a net, limiting the height. So even if you're on Lamar, you're building an apartment complex and it's zoned to be X high because of compatibility, it might not actually be able to reach X high. 
Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. There's some really good examples on South Lamar, just south of Barton Springs, where uh, most of those buildings would be zoned at to go as high as either 60 feet uh, around there would be kind of a standard kind of commercial zoning height. But because of the compatibility rules, and you can see it where, you know, you're like half of the building is only two stories tall. And then after a certain point, it jumps up to, you know, let's say uh, four stories tall. And you're like, why did they build half of the building only at two stories and the other building at four stories? It's because of compatibility rules. And so, you know, you look at that and that's, you know, 40 units, 50 units that could have been added to uh, the, the building that, you know, people could be living on, on a major urban corridor with great transit and restaurants and everything like that, that we've decided, no, we don't want to build that because of, and that's the problem because of I'm not sure what, you, you know, I mean, we get real abstract when we start talking about, you know, we, we talk about vibes and, you know, just kind of strange things like that. Um, it's not clear. My, my major concern is that it's not clear what we're getting for these strict compatibility rules. I know what we're losing. We're losing housing units. What are we getting, though? I'm not sure that we're getting anything. It seems very ephemeral what we're getting, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like one of the I could see compatibility being used, although not maybe not to this extent, but it's like, you know, maybe you don't want a single family home literally right next to a high or you don't want to be that single family home owner that then uh, like a high rise or something is built next to you, like makes me think of the up house or whatever. Right. And, that you know, but it seems like what you're talking about here is like those kind of rules. Maybe this is different. This is different than literally that. Yeah, it goes above and beyond any kind of protection to not be completely blocked in by a tall building, you know, right next to a single family home. Uh, the the item that we passed a couple of weeks ago asked for suggested, I should say, a hundred feet as the limit for uh, compatibility rules. That's plenty of buffer. Uh, again, it would be still be one of the, the strictest compatibility rules in the nation. It would be now tied for one of the strictest compatibility rules in the nation. But lots of cities have a 50-foot a rule or a 75-foot rule. And a lot of others, uh, God, I don't want to get too complex, but are, have a basically kind of a 45-degree angle going up from the end of the single-family home. Uh, that would be the, the height limit there. And, and that rule, that 45-degree uh, line is designed so that uh, it has some open space around it. The single family home that, that sunlight still gets, those kinds of rules like that. There's some practical considerations that I, I completely respect. But when we're talking about 540 feet, uh, I think that's where we're kind of in, in, in la-la land in terms of you know why we want it to go out that far. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what council passed a few weeks ago. Um, so this was like a recommendation or kind of directing staff to go ahead and look at what it would take to really change our compatibility rules. And, and what we're talking about here is changing them citywide, right? So this is a really, this is to me, I don't know if you feel this way. It's like, seems like one of the more substantial changes that council has proposed around housing in years. I think that's correct. Uh, it might be the most substantial change in decades. 
uh, we have some real big ones. Uh, uh, Zoe uh, Kadri, council member Kadri, had a, a parking item that would eliminate parking requirements citywide. And parking takes up a lot of room that housing could otherwise take up. And that's going to be a big rule. But even if we eliminate all parking requirements, people are still going to build parking for their apartment buildings, even though it's not required by law, because people expect to have a place to park their car when they rent uh, an apartment. So, you know, that change, while it's a big change and it's a good change and it'll give people flexibility, is not just going to eliminate parking overnight, you know, across the city. Um, compatibility, though, that's not something that will last. That's something that is strictly there because it's a rule. No one really asks for it or wants it. Um, and, and we made some other changes that are that are important as well. Uh, for example, we want to allow homeowners to uh, grant a waiver for compatibility. Some people don't care if there's a big, tall building next to them. Some people may even want a big, tall building next to them. Uh, they should be allowed to waive their uh, compatibility, waive their house's compatibility. You have other situations where, you know, you have a kind of a random house, a random single family home in a commercial area. And that one house is forcing all the buildings around it to maintain an artificially kind of low height, a 30 foot, 40 foot height when they should be able to go to like say 60 feet, 90 feet. Um, and again, we, we need to allow for those kinds of situations and allow uh, folks to uh, waive their uh, compatibility. Some of the other right now, compatibility crosses the street. So, for example, uh, a building on the uh, west side of Lamar is affected by houses on the east side of Lamar. And that really does not make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, a major compatibility shouldn't be able to jump across the street and affect developments uh, across the uh, way that are you know far away from it that really uh, don't affect it uh, at all. And so there's a handful, in addition to the, the major changes to height, there's a lot of little kind of process changes and, and procedural changes that uh, we're also asking staff to uh, take a look at and to uh, make uh, some uh, suggested uh, changes. Yeah. And then just a quick process question here for people to understand, like council has passed um, in the past few months, really like a whole host of all of these different, um, you know, directions for staff, but none of them are in place yet. So basically what happens, right, is like you pass it over to staff. And with this one in particular, I think there's like a study you're hoping for them to complete to give more insight into like really crafting this yeah. um, in the best way possible. Yeah. So we had, this has been kind of one of my major um, efforts uh, since I've been on council. So last year, and I'm going to have to get into the minutia of, uh, of housing uh, politics and procedure here. Uh, I'm sorry, listeners who are <laughs> not super versed in it, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, last year, when we were talking about the VMU2, which is a vertical mixed use 2, uh, which was a program that would allow uh, buildings on major corridors to go up to potentially 90 feet, uh, I pitched uh, an amendment, uh, basically a compatibility kind of change as part of the VMU2 process. Um, that stirred up a bunch of feelings and controversy. And what 
we did do, and, and staff, to their credit, city staff did great research, kind of really explaining what compatibility, compatibility does, building us maps, and like, you know, a, a GIS maps, showing exactly kind of what its effects are and how it jumped across the street and how it does this and how it does that. Um, and all of that, uh, in the end, we didn't really change compatibility uh, on the VMU2, but we did direct staff to uh, do a study of exactly how compatibility is affecting housing in Austin uh, in, in many different ways. And so they're in the middle of that. Uh, and the, the resolution that I passed a, a couple of weeks ago basically says, you know, finish your study, use that study to inform the changes that you want to bring back to council. But these are these types of changes is what we're looking for. And then it kind of has like five or six different items where, you know, we're like, we really want you to do this. We really want you to think about that. Uh, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that study because uh, I, I know we're looting, losing a lot of housing to a compatibility and hopefully that will uh, that study will, will flesh out uh, those numbers. Yeah. And that study, I think, is supposed to be due sometime this summer. Yes. Um, uh, I think September, if I uh, remember okay. correctly. So. Cool. Um, and then, you know, kind of kind of tied to all of this, I know there was some debate, you know, amongst at council about doing having these compatibility changes happen by right, which is like a term that <laughs> is used a lot versus a density bonus program. So like by right means, you know, saying, you know, we're changing this for the whole city because we need these changes. Density bonus is saying we will grant you the permission to have a looser compatibility if you build affordable housing to it. And I know with council member Allison also that you, you, you both were kind of discussing this and she seemed like she was more on the density bonus side and you, you were on the, Hey, we have like, let's talk through this argument a little bit or kind of the conversation here. Why do you feel like we need to just not have this be tied to a density bonus program? So again, going back to last year for a second. Uh, yeah. The that, history here is good. Yeah. Explain yeah. that this part. So after that whole VMU to be, de debate and, and directing staff to do the study, uh, 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 council member Allison Alter and uh, Mayor Adler, former Mayor uh, Adler, came back with a proposal uh, which they called the compatibility on corridors proposal, where they did a density bonus program for certain properties on certain corridors. They kind of went through and picked large, medium, and I think there were even smaller quarters. I can't remember now uh, the details, but where like if you were on a large quarter, then compatibility was limited to this uh, much. If you participated in a program, if you were in a medium quarter, it was a little bit bigger and a small quarter, a little bit bigger. Uh, and so it was a very complex arrangement of rules designed to hopefully boost uh, uh, housing and eliminate uh, compatibility on, um, you know, certain corridors. Um, there were a, a lot of problems with it. I think the first and foremost was that it didn't touch West Austin at all. And, and that's a problem. Uh, we really need our rules to be universal and, and fair and treat everybody the same. 
We should not be horse trading, you know, corridors where, okay, this corridor, yes, and this corridor, no, because of just kind of like this neighborhood group is very strong, you know, and this neighborhood is not that we is not that strong. So we're going to, you know, do this over here and not over here. We should have housing rules, zoning rules that are universal. Uh, so that I never liked that approach because of this kind of we're just really arbitrarily picking uh, streets and, and highways and saying, OK, these. Yes. But the greater problem with that approach was that it was adopted in uh, December of last year. Uh, and as of today, there have been zero applications for the compatibility on corridors program. Uh, so clearly that approach was not a, a winning approach, was not an effective and productive approach, whereas a by right approach would be universal. It applies to the whole city uh, and it would have an immediate and uh, positive effect in allowing uh, buildings to get up to their zoned height. Uh, so, so that's essentially our experience with bonus programs for compatibility, which like I said, I don't think uh, there is any city in the nation that does a compatibility program, uh, a bonus, a density bonus compatibility program. And I just don't think that approach, um, you know, would, would work. Uh, that said, we did ask staff to do two things. First, to lower it by right, hopefully to about 100 feet or so. We're, we're asking them to look at it, but we were suggesting 100 feet. And then we said, and then look at a bonus program where maybe when you are doing 10% affordable, 20% affordable units, you eliminate compatibility completely. Uh, so I think that's a, a fair and balanced kind of approach where you know we're, we're bringing our rules in line with our, our peer cities. Our compatibility rules are going to be in line with our peer cities. But then we also have a bonus program where you can get deeper cuts or potentially eliminate compatibility if you're participating in a, in a density bonus program. Yeah, I think at the time, you know, in December, council kind of recommended against council. I mean, staff recommended against council passing it because they felt like it was a little bit too confusing for what it would bring about. But council did pass it, right? Did end up passing it. We did. We did. Uh, you know, I think there was kind of let's see what happens yeah. uh, approach. Uh, and uh, staff recommended against it because they thought it would be uh, ineffective and they thought it was too complicated. Uh, and I think both of those fears were have been borne out by the fact that no one has taken us up on that compatibility on uh, corridors uh, proposal yet. Yeah, and I think, you know, another argument I heard, you know, Councilmember Allison Alter making is that, you know, in here in Texas, unfortunately, like we don't have the ability to pass uh, or to like force affordability. <laughs> There's like a lot of states can have like rent control or um, all, all different kinds of programs that you can put in place to like force people to build affordable housing. We don't have those as much. So I think her argument was like, we need to have as much density bonus as possible. Um, but I heard you, you know, kind of push back on that a little bit or, or explain the compatibility piece. I'd love you to kind of talk a little bit about that. So there's compatibility is not part of your property. Uh, you know, you buy a property, let's say, again, sticking with a Lamar example, let's say you buy a property on Lamar, you have no idea really what 
compatibility does to that property. You have to go and hire somebody who's going to do the kind of diagrams necessary to find out exactly which parts, because a lot of times it's not your whole property that's affected by compatibility. It's like half of it, or maybe like the back left corner, or, you know, something like that. So it's a complicated approach you know, if your property is only 20% of it is affected by compatibility, do you want to participate in the bonus program? Is that worth it? Uh, And not only that, but then compatibility can change. You know, what if that single family home that was, you know, casting the compatibility all of a sudden changes, is rezoned into something else, all of a sudden your compatibility program problem goes away. Um, so there's a lot of kind of uncertainty and there's a lot of kind of, you know, strategy in handling uh, compatibility. And it, it was not clear that that doing a bonus program would be an effective way to, um, you know, to, to get people to, to buy in, um, you know, and I will say, I mean, you know, looking nationwide, um, God, and I wish I had more time to just like, read and, and research, but, you know, my sense from uh, other approaches that cities have taken is that while density bonus programs where, you know, we exchange additional height typically for uh, some percentage of affordable units in the development, you know, wh- while those are, are good programs, they in and of themselves are not typically enough to budge uh, housing prices. Uh, And ultimately, we need to just build more units so that there is not uh, this just fight for an open apartment that we're seeing in Austin right now. When 97% of apartments in Austin are occupied renters have no leverage whatsoever against landlords. Landlords are going to charge what they want to charge. And it's basically too bad for you. Uh, We have to, I mean, when I think about goals in uh, uh, Austin housing policy, we've got to get that occupancy rate down to like a 90% and 85% so that, you know, a, a, a potential renter can go to a complex and be like, meh, I'm going to look around a little bit and see what else I can find. Or maybe be like, you know what, I'll offer you less. Or, you know, do you have a first month free rent program or, you know, something like that. But right now, with the occupancy rate as high as it is, uh, the tenants have no leverage. So I really want to get additional units on the market. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not sure that the, the density bonus programs in and of themselves will we'll, we'll get us there. We need a combination of, you know, allowing taller, larger apartment complexes and, uh, you know, providing for uh, uh, affordable housing. Yeah. I, I want to shift gears slightly and just have you touch real quick on another thing that city council passed um, recently or within the past year or so, which is site plan, site plan light, kind of talking about speeding up the review process. So this is kind of on the other side of things, um, more on the like administrative side, which everyone has complained about <laughs> for a long time. Can you just give a quick summary of what of what that program is and the potential there? Yeah. Uh, so um, right now, a site plan is, to briefly explain it, uh, is 
kind of like a, a plan for what you're going to do with the property. And it oftentimes involves uh, engineering reports, and surveys and initial drafts. And, and, and it's a very involved and complex process that takes a lot of money and time. And this um, is like a developer would do this. This you know, is they- a, a, Exactly. You know, a, a developer would have to do it. And right now, what we, uh, any development that's more than a duplex. So if you have a single family home or if you're building a duplex, you do not have to do a side plan. If you're building a triplex or a fourplex or a sixplex or any building larger than a duplex, you have to submit a site plan. There's an approval process where staff reviews your site plan and so on and so forth. And again, it's a it's a lengthy, uh, complex and expensive process that according to you know, builders that, that, that I've talked to, and I'm talking about both nonprofit builders and for-profit builders, uh, it adds hundreds of thousands of dollars to the project cost. Um, Site plan light is a a kind of a two-stage approach. First, we would raise the threshold for not requiring a site plan to four units. So if you're building a fourplex or less, you don't have to do a site plan. And then we would say, we would design this site plan light process, which the goal would be a simpler, quicker uh, review. And that would be between, I believe, if I remember correctly, four to 16 units or five to 16 units would be, you know, have that that site plan light program. And uh, that's in the process right now. But I think those are are good steps uh, toward kind of eliminating unnecessary obstructions to uh, housing, unnecessary processes that add a lot of cost and don't necessarily produce any real kind of, you know, safety or quality or uh, anything uh, uh, like that. Um, you know, obviously for large developments, you've got to have a site plan. Uh, no question about that. How are vehicles going to go in and out of the property? You know, where is the uh, the fire uh, lane uh, going to be? How is uh, Austin Energy going to get access to the property? There's lots of complex questions when you're building a, a large uh, apartment complex. But when you're building a sixplex, you know, it's really not necessary to get into that level of detail to approve a site plan. Uh, and, and so that's where we're trying to streamline that and simplify it so we can get more units on the ground uh, quicker and, and easier and, and cheaper. Right. So what you're seeing here is like multi-tiers, you know, working on both the supply of housing and then also the speed at which new housing can get built on the like permitting and rules and regulation side. That's exactly right. And, and, and multi-tiered also in the sense that, you know, we need to allow more by right housing. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we need bonus programs, but we don't need the bonus programs to kind of swallow everything up and to be like every single thing you do, you have to do this as well. And you have to do this as well. What what we've seen when we do that, when we overreach with the bonus programs, is that people just don't participate. You know, they will just be like, you know what, 
I'm just going to build my apartment complex that I was going to build before this even, you know, started. And, and I'm just going to do what I can do. And then we end up losing, you know, 20 units. Uh, so, uh, or, you know, in the single family context, uh, I think the, the greatest problem really, uh, compatibility is a huge one. I think the, the other major, major problem in Austin right now with housing is that, the most profitable thing that a builder can do in Austin is take a little single family house, tear it down and build a huge single family house. That's so easy. There's no rules stopping it. There's no special permission that you need to get. There's nothing. But God forbid that you take that little single family house and you build a fourplex. Oh, God. You know, you've just added, you know, maybe $150,000 in uh, permitting fees, a year's delay, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. So, uh, again, I mean, I, I, you know, those little houses, to the extent that those small single family houses are going to be torn down and replaced, I'd rather they be replaced with a triplex or a fourplex than with a, you know, 3,000 square foot McMansion. Yeah. Is speaking of that, is, is minimum lot sizes anything that council is looking at? Um, is that something we can change in our code or does it have to go through a bigger process? I just had a, a meeting with uh, council member uh, Leslie Poole and, and, and her staff, uh, and she is bringing a, a small lot item to restructure um, Austin's uh, minimum lot sizes and to look at what we're allowing people to build on single family lots. I think it's going to be a really good item. And that may be one of the biggest and most positive changes that Austin can make. Um, you know, we have, in addition to our very strict nation leading strict compatibility standards, we also have uh, the highest single family lot sizes in uh, Texas. Uh, I'm not sure about nationally, but with our, again, looking at our peer cities, cities of a million people uh, or more, uh, we have very high single family lot sizes. Our, our minimum single family lot size is 5,750 square feet. Um, most cities, I should say a lot of cities, 2,000 square feet, you know, somewhere around there. So our, 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 our minimum lot sizes are, are, are double uh, what most cities are. And, you know, in, in the real estate game, you know, you're paying per square foot. You know, a 2,000 square foot house costs more than a 1,000 square foot house. You know, a 5,000 square foot lot costs a lot more than a 2,000 square foot lot. So when we're thinking about affordability, uh, the best thing that we can do is allow smaller lots that have smaller homes. You know, nothing wrong with a, a 1,500 square foot home on a 2,000 square foot lot or so. That is affordable kind of in and of itself without any you know special programs or without any kind of government subsidy or anything like that we're just saying that you know you want a cheaper house build on a smaller lot it, it, you know it, it's a really simple formula and that was council member tito vela and just to give a bit more context behind that whole compatibility discussion, so to recap, in June, City Council did pass the resolution from Councilmember Vela, which asked city staff to start the process of making changes to our compatibility standards. And this includes considering reducing the compatibility triggering distance from 540 to 100 feet, allowing for those waivers we talked about, and preventing things like a vacant lot with a single family zoning from casting a compatibility radius around it, even though there's no home built on it. 
But as you heard in my conversation with Councilmember Vela, these compatibility changes, they're a bit more controversial at City Hall than some of the other more recent housing proposals. Uh, Council members Allison Alter and Mackenzie Kelly, they both voted against Vela's compatibility resolution at a council meeting in June. So to give you a better idea over some of the objections raised um, about these standards and changes, here's a clip of council member Allison Alter speaking at the council meeting before ultimately voting against council member Vela's resolution. Oh, and the other voice you're going to hear in this clip is Rosie Truelove, um, who is the director of housing for the city of Austin. And you're also going to hear council member Allison Alter talking a lot about something called the strategic housing blueprint which is basically a vision or goal uh, passed by city council in 2017 to create 60,000 affordable housing units for those making less than 80% of the median family income and um, assuring that there's affordable housing throughout the city. So that's what she's talking about when she's talking about the strategic housing blueprint. Okay, anyway, here's that clip of council member Allison Alter at the June 8th council meeting. So I'm going to just summarize and then if you can just tell me if I have this uh, wrong. So cities and other states are allowed to simply mandate affordable housing requirements without creating voluntary programs like density bonus programs. In Texas, we cannot do that. We can only enforce affordable housing requirements if someone voluntarily participates in something like a density bonus program. And in our strategic housing blueprint, staff recommended that there for corridors and centers, we should have a density bonus program where any increase in development capacity will be tied to an affordability requirement. Is that? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so colleagues, I believe that you've all seen my amendment, which was distributed and posted yesterday. As I stated, I believe we can debate the distances and triggers of compatibility. Um, and I tried to advance that conversation when I co-sponsored with Mayor Adler and others on this dais last year's compatibility reforms, which everyone on the dais who was serving then voted to adopt, I believe. Um, that item made affordability a key requirement of the compatibility relaxation. It recognized that we can increase market rate housing supply while also creating income-restricted affordable housing for our community. Housing units that are market alone will never create insufficient supply to meet the need. I'm not someone who believes in trickle-down theories which assume that simply trusting in growth and the benevolence of the free market will allow us to achieve our goals. I think our strategic housing blueprint confirms that. It lists a myriad of strategies that detail why the market alone, why increasing development entitlements alone, is not enough to advance affordability. If that were true, then we wouldn't need a strategic housing blueprint. If that were true, then we wouldn't need a housing department. We could simply upzone the entire city. And with that, I think it's time to end our show for today. But keep an eye on our Instagram page, because we'll continue to keep you updated as all of these housing proposals come closer to a final vote. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based right here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. 
You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening. You gotta listen.